6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Well, we're in a study of the book of Jacob, Jacob's letter to the 12 tribes. Uh, Jacob is Jacobus in the Greek, Jacques in French, Iago in Italian, Diego in Spanish, Yaakov in Hebrew, and James in English. There seems to be quite a bridge between James and Jacob. Most people are thrown by that. We believe the letter. There's uh, four Jameses in the New Testament. We, for lots of reasons that I won't bother going through again, uh, attribute the letter to the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph did have other children after Jesus. They're listed in the scripture several times. And one of those was the, the one who did not believe in his brother uh, as the son of God until after the resurrection, where he did, and he became one of the major leaders in the early church. There are some very strange heresies brewing around his identity and some other things that will defer to a special evening when it's more appropriate, but just so you're aware of that, there are some books being published and so forth that have some very bizarre theories that we'll talk about in a subsequent time. Just be aware of that. It was written certainly prior to 62 A.D. Um, there's two really two scholastic views, both defendable. Some that it, it wasn't written after that because that's when, um, following the reign of Festus, there was a uh, lull in Roman authority uh, before the new Roman government took control. In this short period, there was a conspiracy led by Annas the Younger, the son of the high priest Annas, who illegally arranged for the execution of James. And we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, a little later. This execution of James at that, in 62 AD may have been, uh, triggered a whole series of events that led to the rebellion that led to Rome being destroyed in 70 AD, that eight-year turbulent period. But we'll take that up a little bit later in our series on this book. Written to the 12 tribes, it says in the opening verse. Ten are not missing. <laughs> our 12 tribes, we dealt with all that earlier. Uh, the same 12 tribes that uh, Peter talks about in his first letter. And the same one that Paul, the same group of 12 tribes that Paul addressed in his uh, speech before Agrippa in Acts 26 and so forth. There are about 60 imperatives in the 108 verses. And uh, more than any other New Testament book. But we shouldn't just carry away from the book of James uh, the do's and don'ts. The most precious thing that we want to get out of the book is perspective, and we want to be sensitive to the real lessons here. Whenever we feel sorrow or pain, we're tempted to ask people to pray. If people ask us, what should we pray for? You probably ask to pray for my illness, or pray for uh, my financial needs to be met, or pray for that, uh, that people, what people are doing to me might stop, or whatever. James is actually insisting on a radical change in our thinking. Where are the real dangers in our life? And they're not from medical, financial, or, or social, or other problems. The most serious danger is not what's being done to me, but what's being done by me. And uh, that's one of the things he, he, uh, James is dealing with, is that we should, uh, just like Jesus said, taught us, lead us not into temptation. We should worry about these trials that we encounter. We should pray for our behavior or response to them more than the trials themselves. That's where the real danger is. Don't pray, Lord, keep me safe. Lord, keep me pure. 
that's one of the main themes through the book of James. He uh, asserts uh, behind these imperatives, he asserts, if you watch carefully, he's building our representation of our belief about the nature of God. Because our behavior demonstrates what we really believe, where our faith really is. Many people imagine a conflict between uh, the teaching of James and the teachings of Paul. And that's only uh, uh, one of, uh, uh, of a misguided perception. They're really addressing uh, uh, slightly different issues. And we'll, we, we dealt with that as we go, and, and uh, we'll talk uh, more about that. James, of course, emphasized that we need to be a, a doer, not just a hearer only. And we talked about how does one come, become a hearer only? By being relativistic, subjective. All things are relative is one way that you are not a doer. By being superstitious, that is relying on magic or mysticism. The Israelites relied on the ark, if you recall, to utter disaster. They lost wars, so they put the ark in front. They lost, even, they lost the ark. <clears throat> we have a tendency to do that. You can do that with the Bible. You can do that with the church. No, you've got to keep focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Another way you can be a, a hearer and not a doer is by emotion rather than real understanding. By being theoretical instead of being obedient. How do we become a doer? As James talked about this a little by review of last time. By looking intently at the scriptures, digging deeply. Not just devotional reading, but really digging in and, and, and getting grounded. And by being continual, not just uh, occasional. And not forgetting, that is learning the scripture. Really learning, memorizing, make it part of your life. And, all, and the way you become a, a doer is by doing. <laughs> Applying the scripture. Active obedience. And that's really what James is going to be focusing on as we go. Let me ask you a question, just as again by way of review of some of the loose ends from last time. It happens to be one of my most concerned topics. What is the most painful sin? What sin has caused more pain, probably, than any other? We could think of a lot of them, I think. I'm going to suggest gossip. Gossip. Its most formal form, of course, is a violation of as Exodus 20, verse 6, bearing false witness. But in its more subtle forms, gossip is probably accountable for more personal pain and suffering than most of us have any appreciation of. Gossip is a form of betrayal. I mention this because we closed last time we're talking about where James talks about bridling uh, the tongue and so forth. Verse 26. Um, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Chalmageo is the, is the Greek, which means to bridle or hold in check, to restrain, to keep a tight rein on. The tongue is the most unruly of all our members. It's interesting that gossip is one of the forms where we do more damage than we probably have any idea. Very quietly behind the flurry of our daily priorities, the venom of gossip does its silent work. It undermines confidences, betrays relationships, spreads unseen justices. And James, of course, focuses this in the last session. And I mention this, I guess, because it's a very um, sensitive subject, because I think most of you know our background, Nan and I. We had our personal troubles at the turn of the decade. From about 1988 through 91, we went through quite a deep valley. Bankruptcy, earthquakes, relocating from our family roots. But it's interesting as we look back on that, to this day still, the pain endures, not from the physical trauma, not from the financial trauma, not from the, a lot of other things you might list. The, the deepest pain we have had from those difficult years is from the libel, the slander that was promoted or tolerated by, uh, I'd say, I was going to say a few, actually most, all, all but a few 
of our so-called Christian friends. Most of us in here can probably relate to similar experiences. And it's amazing to discover how many people have been injured deeply by gossip and by those who accept without checking uh, negative or derogatory innuendos that are whispered behind their backs. One of the things that bothers me, because it comes up frequently when I converse with other people in the ministry, people often ask me, gee, I've spent 30 years as an executive in a number of different companies, the auto industry, the semiconductor industry, the computer industry, whatever. I've made this transition the last uh, seven years, say, uh, to professional Christianity, if you will. We've experienced more lies, more slander, more libel since we entered the ministry than we did in the secular world. And I think part of that's poor training. Part of that's just um, a lack of awareness. And it's, but it's, it, when you stand back, it's, it's disturbing. It's, and what an opportunity we have as Christians to display loyalty, love, by assuming the most charitable construction in advance to demonstrate a foundation of a relationship. When you hear about something about your friend, you have to check. Just presume the best, not the worst. We go through a lot of texts. I'll go through a few. Leviticus 19.16, the scripture says, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord, he says. In Proverbs 11.13, a talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down into the innermost parts of the belly. And I don't think that's just figure of language. I think there's physiological damage from these anxieties. I think any MD will verify that. Proverbs 20.19, he that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets, therefore meddle not with him who flattereth with his lips. How interesting it is as you get experienced in human relationships that you can spot them. Proverbs 26.20, where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. And so where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. And it's interesting how in some organizations, uh, when one person leaves, how much peace there is everywhere. <laughs> and we laugh about it, but it's interesting how that little ingredient can destroy organizations in general and especially those organizations which have no explicit objective function. If you're in a sales organization or if you're in combat in an infantry unit and so forth, it's not political because you know whether you're winning or losing. If you're on a football team and it's halftime, you know, you know where you stand. You can look at the scoreboard. You can look at the yardage. Those are objective functions. But if you're in a school, a hospital, or a church, or some of these organizations, they have no clear, explicit function. And what takes the place are substitute measures. And call that politics, give it other labels. That's where these things are especially damaging. Proverbs 26, 21, As coals are to burning coals, and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. It doesn't say woman, but I suspect we could, you know, I'll go on. Uh, Proverbs 26, 22, The words of a talebearer are as wounds. They go down into the innermost parts of the belly. And uh, on it goes. Now you say, gee, Christians don't. Let me tell you, you, know, you know what the Christian form of this is? I don't want to talk about so-and-so, but in order that you can pray for them more specifically, let me tell you the latest. You know? Now I know none of you do that, but I, I thought I'd mention this so that you could minister to those friends of yours that do this sort of thing. What is true friendship? We say that so glibly. It's a common word. We talk about it. I'm going to suggest that a true friendship is one that doesn't require explanations. One who gives the benefit of the doubt in advance without asking. 
one who is loyal and shuns any form of betrayal. There's a poem. I don't normally do this in a Bible study, but there's a poem that's dear to my heart. And I'm just going to, if you just indulge me, let me read this poem. The name is I Hear It Said by Barbara Young. Last night, my friend, he says he is my friend, came in and questioned me. I heard it said that you've done this and that. I come to ask, are these things true? A glint was in his eye of small distrust. His words were crisp and hot. He measured me with anger and flung down a little heap of facts which had come to him. I hear it said that you've done this and that. Suppose I have. Are you not my friend? Are you not my friend enough to say, if it were true, there would be reason in it? And if I cannot know the how or why, still I can trust you. Waiting for a word, or if no word, uh, if no, or no word, if no word ever come. Is friendship just a thing of afternoons, of pleasuring one's friend and one's dear self? Greed for sedate approval of his pace? Suspicion? If you take one little turn upon the road, one flight into the air, and has not sought you for a yea or nay? No, friendship is not so. I am my own. And howsoever near my friend may draw unto my soul, there is a legend hung above a certain straight and narrow way that says, Dear friend, you may not enter here. I would that the time has come, and it has not, when men shall rise and say, He is my friend. He has done this, and what is that to me? Think you I have a check upon his head or cast a guiding rein across his neck? I am his friend. And for that cause, I walk not over close to him, uh, not over close beside him, leaving still space for his silences and space for mine. Anyway, well, let's tie off of last time. Let's go to chapter 2 of Jacob's letter to the 12 tribes. And Jacob, uh, or James, is going to hammer continually on the importance of reality in our attitude towards God and to his word. Let me say that again. James is going to hammer away at the importance of reality in our attitude towards God and his word. We have all these do's and don'ts, it sounds like, but be more careful. Get his perspective. Verse 1. My brethren... Have not the faith, in fact the word is actually not have, it's hold in the Greek, but anyway. My brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Now it's kind of interesting that the half-brother of the Lord Jesus uses here his full title. Apparently he's his half-brother, but he does. He calls him our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And I like this because I hold the view that he knows, having lived with him, a lot more about Jesus' deity than some arrogant theologians in musty libraries who like to take votes on what Jesus really said. <laughs> I always get amused by the so-called Jesus seminar. It's as if they, if they cast enough votes, maybe he'd resign. See, But anyway, uh, Eusebius' account of James's martyrdom, the guy that wrote this letter was martyred. He himself left us a vivid example of impartiality. He was held in so high regard as one who does not, is not a respecter of persons, that when the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem were alarmed by the numbers of uh, 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 who were uh, believing in Jesus Christ, they appealed to James to make a speech to calm the crowd. Apparently took things seriously in those days. When they presented James to the crowd, the speech he gave was hardly what they wanted, uh, for he declared Jesus to be the Christ in such strong terms that many 
More became believers from the result of his speech. And according to the account in Eusebius, this was the incident that led to James's death. The authorities were so angered by his speech uh, that they cast him to the ground and stoned him to death while he was praying for God to forgive them. Interesting example. The, the chapter division, by the way, between verse 27 and chapter 2 is unfortunate because these chapter divisions often disguise what really should be a linkage. There's a linkage between not, being, not showing favoritism that he's now starting to deal with and this idea of not being polluted by the world, which was the last verse of the previous chapter we studied last time. And uh, you see, what, the way we behave toward people reveals what we really believe about God. The way you act towards other people manifests what your real belief structure is. Also, nothing reveals the selfishness of the human heart more than the way we're inclined to be, inclined to honor the wealthy and influential while neglecting the poor and uh, ignorant. We tend to, you know, to, tend to, to make those distinctions. And it's just, we have pyramid climbers in churches as well as uh, in politics, industry, and our society. And James will deal with that in chapter 3 also. There's a lot of examples of this. We visited churches where in a strange area we just dropped into a church and so forth and totally ignored by the crowd until the pastor's wife recognizes Nan. And then suddenly, you know, the whole mood changes. If we're just strangers walking in, you know, welcome and so forth, you get uh, how often it is that we're ignored, you know, until they, for some reason, perceive that, oh, oh gee, we got to, you know, you get the picture. Uh, very, very interesting. James is going to talk a, lot, talk a lot about the rich, too, before we're through later on in chapter 5. But uh, Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Rudyard Kipling was right. I don't know if you probably all have seen his poem, If. And uh, he says, regarding a success and failure, he says, treat both of those imposters the same. Success is a phony, and so is failure. And uh, Rudyard Kipling expressed it so well. It's interesting that uh, God is no respecter of persons. Peter learned that in Acts 10, remember, at Cornelius' house. And the Jews were very upset because from that sheet that came down and all that, uh, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says that God is not a respecter of persons. Otherwise, was opening the door to the Gentiles. And in James, the writer to this epistle, also you may recall in Acts 15 when there's the big debate, can, do Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians? The big, it was a big issue in those days. And James goes to bat after hearing all the discussion and so forth and uh, points out that, I love the way Peter said it, his closing speech too, he says, if we play our cards right, we, Jews, can be saved as they are. He turns it around, get very clever, a very funny passage in there. But it was James, of course, that decree, you know, that formalizes the sense of the council by saying that, you know, that, that God is receiving the Gentiles without requiring of them Jewishness in terms of circumcision and all that, that's... Not required. If they will just do a certain few things, basic things, for decency. In other words, they're not under the, the Mosaic laws. Anyway, verse 2. James continues, For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and by, when he says the word assembly here is by the word, there's actually the word for synagogue. So it's still a Jewish context. James, of course, was very Jewish. And uh, you'll notice that all the way in the style and the expressions. But also it was very, still very early. That's another reason this is probably very, very early. But anyway, going on. Verse 3. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. And he goes on. See, you can't profess faith in Jesus Christ and be a spiritual snob. That's really the thrust of what is being set up here. 
And we need to all watch out for cliques in our churches as well as anywhere else. Tendency for that. And this kind of thing affects our personal relationships within a, in a fellowship. I think there's also an interesting danger I'm very sensitive to in the doctrine. There's a lot of people around that are very prominent and love the Lord and the Lord's blessing the ministry with whom we don't agree in doctrine. There's some biblical view that they're really, in our view at least, not right on. And I think it's important for us to pursue sound doctrine. Don't misunderstand me. But it's really disturbing how in the Christian community we seem to make mountains out of molehills and how we seem to always organize firing squads in circles. You know? Mahatma Gandhi of India, they ask him, uh, what did he see the biggest barrier to having Christianity make better inroads in India? And his answer is very provocative. Biggest barrier are Christians. Their conduct, their behavior. It's a turnoff. Because I'm in that community, professionally, daily, publicly. And I have to tell you, one of my biggest disturbances in my, my personal psyche, my life, is trying to deal with the realities that I find within the people who proclaim Christ. They profess Christ. And some of their conduct, their character, their integrity is not at a level that I'm used to presuming in the secular world. Now, it wasn't any peaches and cream either. Don't, I'm not painting Pollyanna here. I'm not trying to... But we need to look that in the eye and prayerfully deal with that. We've got to watch out for all, especially in the church, all kinds of stratification, the rich, the poor, the common, the high, the low, the bondage, the free, the, the Jew, the Gentile, the Greek, the barbarian, male, female. And yes, premillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib. This is one of the things that really bothered Walter Martin. We were very close. And he loved to stir up trouble by you know, uh, being a proponent of post-tribulationism. He was very unusual one because he was premillennial, and that created some other interesting questions. But the point is, we used to kid a lot about that. But the point is, what bothered him wasn't the eschatology. He regarded eschatology as peripheral theology, not a basis to break fellowship. And he discovered that as he traveled, there were platforms that when they discovered he wasn't pre-trib, he wasn't welcome anymore. And that bothered him. Not that he expected for them to be post-trib or that he should become pre-trib, but it bothered him that that was a, a division of fellowship. So it's interesting. Jesus broke down the wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We'll keep moving in the interest of time. But Friendship and fellowship are supposed to be the legal tender of the Christian community, not dollars or balance sheets or what kind of car you drive or or how many inches your desk overhangs at work, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so, you might turn to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. I've got a lot of verses, I won't chase them all down, but there's a few here that we really should uh, take the time to, to actually extract, rather than just have me quote it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we pick it up about verse 26. Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And I've forgotten whether it was Queen Victoria or which one, one of the British queens, I forgot to look it up in my notes way back, but one of the queens, I think it was Queen Victoria, said she felt she was saved by an M. Because in this verse it says, Not many mighty, not many noble. It doesn't say not any, it says not many. 
and she was saved. And she felt she snuck in because it says many, not any, see? So, kind of interesting. But anyway, um, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, have God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. It's been one of our speculations as we watch the approaching millennium changeover, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we look at America, which is going out of its way to insult God. Everything He's expressed, they're not only violating, they're manifesting their violation of it. And um, in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, it speaks of the sinners that haul their iniquities on carts pulled by rope. In other words, not only sinning, they make parades out of it. That sound familiar? America uh, is, would seem to us as to be ripe for judgment. So it's interesting that God may have chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the mighty and are the wise and so forth. It's, uh, it's interesting. So this is a comment towards stratification. What James is talking about is that we shouldn't have favoritism. We shouldn't be partitioning, you know, the good guys, the bad guys. When somebody wealthy walks into the, to the uh, service on Sunday morning, we, ooh, let's make sure he gets the front pew. I'll... No, no, no. That's, that's... And it's not that it's so bad itself. That's not the point. It manifests what we really believe about God. Because our life should be a testimony of our real belief of the character of God. Would God do that? In verse 4, Are ye not then partial in yourselves and have become judges of evil thoughts? And Leviticus 19.15 says, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Now, we live in society where even the decisions of our courts and our governmental bodies are measured out in terms of social pressures and power rather than real justice. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.